We're going to attack Hebrews uh, 13 today. And then just so you know where we're headed in the, in the, in the coming weeks, uh, we'll conclude March by working through a series on what is a healthy church member as we begin to establish some foundational things for a, a church, uh, one of them being membership. And so we want to work through that series starting next week till the end of the March. And then we'll be embark on um, just preparing our hearts and our minds for the Easter season. Uh, Easter's a little later this year, I think like that 20th, uh, that Sunday, somewhere in there. Yeah, Good Friday was the 19th, so there we go. Hebrews 13. I don't know, I've enjoyed this book. Uh, it's spoken to me, but it's been a, it's been a, a bit of a book to work through, and there's, there's so much. This morning I was uh, texting back and forth with my son Josh, who's in Ottawa, and um, he says, you're already done Hebrews? We're clipping along pretty good. And I go, yeah, we probably, probably quick, but in some ways it seemed like it was probably long. I don't know where you're at. This week I've been thinking, I was thinking about what, what God said in Genesis chapter 1 after the creation of the world and after he creates on the sixth day male and female. And he says about all of his creation, it is very good. And often I think I thought of that as simply like it looks good, like aesthetically. But I, I think the more I, I, I wrestle with that, that and the rest of Scripture, there, I, I think what he was saying that, that its end, its purpose was very good. It was complete. It was done. And there was a sense where it, uh, maybe the best way to, to help us understand that is let me just read a couple places. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read this, even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So before the world was created, God chose his people, and he did that with the purpose that they would be holy and blameless in his presence. And so when God says about the creation that he created, and says it is very good, he says this is the end of which they were created for, to do good works. Andrew read from chapter 2, and we read these phrases. For we, the people of God, are his workmanship, literally his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so... Our purpose, our, one of our reasons for being is to do good works in the presence of God. And I say all of that because Hebrews has been a, a book just filled with theology. But last week, and particularly this week, we get to a place where he says, now in light of what I have told you to be is true... This is how you ought to live. We were created for good works. Okay? You see where I'm going? Last week we, we unpacked verses 18 to, to the end of chapter 12. And it, it, I said it was kind of a recap of the entire book as he, as he 
he brings in all kinds of different themes, but the idea is we have this kingdom that is unshakable. It's already ours. And I use the illustration of uh, World War II when, when the Allies uh, landed on the, uh, on the coast. And the victory at that point, once they established their presence on the European coast, the war was over, yet there was a number of battles that still had to take place till they got to Berlin. And the war was finally over. There's a similar sense when it comes to Christ because of his work on the cross 2,000 years ago. The war is over. The reality is we have an unshakable kingdom, but yet it's not quite there yet. Now he says in verse 28, last week, he says, Therefore, because all these things are true, because of what Christ has done, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so what's the first step in, in light of everything that Jesus has done for us? The very first step is just to stop and go, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. This should be, we should be a people of incredible gratitude. But not only that, he says in that, and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. God, not only thank you for what you've done, but Lord, we worship you. But how do we worship you? Yes, on Sunday we do that through song. But our text is actually going to go a little further. We do that in a number of ways. And in chapter 13, um, he's basically going to say that this worship that we are to offer to God involves serving God's people. And secondly, it involves remembering God's leaders. Okay? Now, it encompasses more. I don't think our author is going to tell us everything, but he certainly tells us a lot. He begins those first six verses and says that if we worship God because of everything Christ has done, we are to worship God. It involves us serving the people of God. He starts with a phrase that I think is it's short. We can read it quickly. We can miss it. Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. Jesus in the, in the Gospel of Matthew says this in verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 8. He just simply says, But you are called... You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. This is Jesus speaking. He says, you are all brothers. The God who created the universe, who graciously stepped into this world to die on our behalf, calls us brothers and sisters. That's remarkable which means we are the family of God we are siblings and and the word love there is not just simply an attitude a feeling it's much stronger as we're going to begin to see it it speaks to a behavior and a action he will unpack that the book of Hebrews in chapter 2, you might remember, you don't have to go there, but Hebrews 2.11, it says, 
For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That's Christ. He calls us brothers, sisters. And he says that love should remain. That word, or continue, the same word is used just a few verses up in chapter 12 where it says, therefore, let us, uh, in verse 27, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What are those things? It's God's kingdom. God's kingdom, it cannot be shaken. It will remain. It will abide. It will continue. And love, brotherly love, is, is, is a love that is part of that kingdom. Many years ago, a... a um, one of my mentors simply said to me, he says, Elroy, there are only a couple things that are eternal in this world. One of them is the Word of God, and the other is the people of God. Eternal. Will live, last forever. And, and his point was, in light of that, that's what's important. That's what will endure. The, the, our text tells us that the the kingdom of God will endure, but love will also endure. It will remain. And so our author just simply says that we need to continue to love one another, and then he begins to show us how. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Typically, we think of hospitality as somebody who's really good at opening up their home and having a good meal. But the language and, and the context back then, uh, you did not want to go into his town and actually stay at one of the local inns or hotels. You would rather go to, to a new town and l move in or come in to somebody's home where they would feed you and give you a place to live. Do not neglect to show hospitality, that kind of hospitality where you open up your home and say, come on in, you can eat my food and you can sleep in my beds. To strangers. To strangers. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That's brotherly love. Now he gives us a bit of a motivation to, to help us to do that. He says, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I think he's thinking back to the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham, three strangers come in, and he does that. He opens up his home, he feeds them. Two of them, we're told, were angels. The other was the angel of the Lord, none other than Jesus Christ. But didn't Jesus say something similar? Matthew chapter 25. I think our author is actually thinking of Jesus' words in Matthew as he's going through some of this stuff. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, listen to what Christ said. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from the other, as a, shep a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. 
I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see, see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus tells us this is how we ought to live, and, and now our author in Hebrews says you are to be hospitable because of everything Christ has done. You are to be hospitable, and that means taking in strangers, opening up your home, sharing your food, sharing your possessions, and that's going to cost. It's not just I feel good about the person next door, but it's like I am going to literally invite them into my life. That's brotherly love that is to continue a community grace in the lives of Christians, in the lives of believers. And and after all, in light of everything that Christ has done, is that really too much to ask? And, and when we take in strangers, we're literally, as Christ says, we're actually entertaining Christ himself. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. Verse 3, he carries on. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Now, I don't think he's talking about just anybody who's in prison. In chapter 10, if you go back just a few, back in chapter 10, verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. In their context, some of their brothers and sisters in Christ were in prison because of what they believed. And, and to show kindness and to show hospitality to them, to go out of your way to love them and care for them, actually made you look bad in the eyes of the government. And our author says, in light of everything that Christ has done for you, you're to remember those who are in prison as if you were there with them. And those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. I've been reflecting and meditating on Romans chapter 12 as I prepare for this series on being members of one another, healthy membership. And Romans chapter 12, I think it's verse 5, striking statements is said, and hope does not put us to... No, that's 5, sorry. Romans 12, verse 5 simply says, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. I'll be honest, I don't live like that. I need to grow in that. But that literally means that I cannot live without you. 
and you can't live without me. We're members of one another. And, and our author simply says that those who are mistreated uh, and those who are in prison, so we're to treat them and love them and care for them as if we were right there with them. Why? Since you are also in the body. When the scriptures talk about the life of the church, when they talk about what the church is, it's, it's, not some, it's not a building that we come to. It's not an event that we go to. It's a people that we belong to. That's what he means when he says, let brotherly love continue. Now he goes on. In verse 4 and 5, he's going to talk about sex and money. But these things aren't just, uh, aren't just hidden away in the context of a family unit or in, in the context of a single person. This is, again, the language of the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Ephesians says that there ought not to be a hint of sexual immorality among us. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. He goes on and he says, and he concludes, this is the reason, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And I think he's talking to the church. Right here. Remember the last phrase in chapter 12, for our God is a consuming fire. He is a God that will judge. He is a God that will deal with, he will punish. He is a God of love. We can boldly come into his presence like children and because we are his children, but he's also a God that will judge. Sexually immoral is just a general statement about any sex outside the context of marriage. And adulteress is, is, is a statement of anyone who is married and is, and is and having sex outside of that relationship. And so basically he covers all the... and says sex is only meant in the, in the context of a holy covenant between a man and a woman. And quite frankly, there's no place for sexual immorality or adultery in the context of the church family. And we're not telling the world how they ought to live, but we are saying this is how we ought to live. Let the marriage bed be held in honor among all. Now there's reasons for that because marriage actually points to a... It, it's actually... It's bigger than it is. It, 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 it's, it's, it's actually a symbol of something far more beautiful, and that's the, the precious relationship between God and Jesus and his bride. And as he's faithful to us, uh, that faithfulness should be reflected in the way we, whether we're single or married, behave sexually or think sexually. 
No, he doesn't stop with sex. He goes on because of everything that Christ has done for us. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. What is it in 1 Timothy? He says the, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of, is the root of evil, right? all evil. The love of money. Money's not the issue. It's whether we set our affections on, on that money. Whether that becomes the most important thing. Money's not an issue. Money's not a problem. If somebody has more money than you, thank God and bless them. And if you've been given money, praise the Lord for it and be generous with it. Keep your life from the love of money and be content with what you have. Be okay with Lord, thank you for what's on my table. Thank you for the home I live in. Thank you, thank you for what you've given me. But oh, and I'm guilty of this. It's so easy to look at what my neighbor has. But that can't happen in the context of the church. If somebody has more than you, good for them. My older brother says. The Lord must have known I couldn't, I couldn't handle being rich because I don't, I'm not rich. I, lo- I, love that, I love the way he said that because it's like, maybe others have more money because God knows that they can handle it. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. I, I, think of Jesus again, Matthew. I, I think our author, as he's closing this book, he's thinking of Jesus' words in Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said these things. He says, um, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life? And why why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of them. But if God so loves the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Our author just simply says, be content. Keep free from the love of money. And then he concludes with this motivation. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If Christ so loved you that he stepped out of heaven and gave his life for you, and and he says to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you, do you think he'll take care of your financial needs? Yeah. So we can confidently confidently say in verse 6, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If God is my helper, 
Why should I be afraid? I need to hear those words almost every day. I don't know about you. And so, so he says the this, this spiritual worship involves serving God's people. And here are some examples of how that looks. You see, we're not playing church. We're not just coming to an event. We're not just walking into a building. This is how the church is to function. Now, I don't, I don't say this going, I've got this figured out and I live like this. I, I, I'm just simply saying this is, this, is, this is the ideal and we should be moving towards it. Oh, wouldn't that be countercultural? Wouldn't that be attractive? I think so. Now, he then goes on and he, he begins to begin to speak about the spiritual worship also re- involves remembering your leaders, God's leaders. He starts in verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. And he closes 17 through 19, kind of bookends, obey your leaders and submit to them. And then he says in verse 18, pray for us. And so he's talking about leadership and this whole section is, is about this leadership piece. Now he's going to say a whole bunch of things, but this is kind of the focus. Okay? So part of our spiritual worship is to remember our leaders. Let's unpack it. What does leadership look like? Verse 7, remember your leaders. He's talking about in the context of the church. Those who spoke the word to you, the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. One one of the, I think, most troubling um, points about Western Christianity is how we define leaders in the context of the church. We think that in the context of the church, a leader should be a CEO or a great business leader or put together great events or, or charismatic in their, in, in their ability up front or whatever. But our text just simply says that they are the ones who speak the word of God to us. It's the main job of an elder or a pastor. And he's going to say some more things of what their job is. But they're to go, God has said this, and and let me remind you of what he has said. As I've been reminded this week, let me remind you what he has said. That's the task of the pastor. That's the task of the elder. That's a, and, and as we begin to look for elders in the context of this local church, whether they be paid or, 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 or unpaid, is this evident in their life? But not only do they preach the word of God to you, but did you notice they are individuals that we can imitate. So they're... They're not only proclaiming, but they practice what they proclaim. And where they fail, I was talking to one of my brothers here. He's, he's uh, from the other congregation just before the service. And they've got an issue they're dealing with the city of Calgary. And he just said, there's just an arrogance with our, with our leadership that it's hard to have a conversation with them. They, they don't want to listen. And, and I said, isn't it funny, as we look at leadership literally around the globe right now whether it's at local levels or at at world levels there seems to be an arrogance the leadership in the context of the church needs to be leaders who submit to god's word 
and obey God's word, and where they fail, fess up. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. And then he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he seems like, what, where, why did he stick that there? But I think the point for that is simply, this is what they preached. And this is who they should be imitating. And then he goes on, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. The leaders of God's church are, are individuals who are to bring God's word to the people, not strange teachings. And what are they to bring specifically? They're to bring Jesus to the people. And even more specific in verse 9, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. What's he mean there? Well, the heart in that language, in that time period, was not just uh, our affections, it it spoke about our mind, and it spoke about our desires. It was the inner person. And he says our inner person, our desires, and our mind are strengthened by what? Not rules on what foods we should eat and, and can eat and what things we should eat and not do, or do and not do. We're strengthened by grace. What is that Grace. Well, as we've been going through this, this book, let me read some places in the past. Chapter 3, verse 8. Do not you harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. He's talking about the people of Israel. They rebelled. Their hearts were hard and they rebelled when God tested them. In chapter 9, verse 18, listen to these words. Actually, let's go to 10, 22. Let us draw near with a true heart. Draw near where? To the house of God. Draw near where? To, the, to, to, to God himself. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What is that blood? What is that sprinkling? It's the blood of Christ. It's faith in what Christ has done. Grace strengthens our heart. That grace is none other than God Himself, Jesus Christ, gave His life. His blood was sprinkled on the altar, the mercy seat, in the presence of God and upon us so that we are now clean and now can enter into His presence. As we as we contemplate, as we hear God's Word, and every week hearing God's Word, but not just facts and numbers and rules from the book, but hearing what Christ has done, our hearts are strengthened. And we can. Our desires, our affections are changed, and so we can obey Him. The leader's job is not simply to tell you, tell you how much they know, but the leader's job is to say, as I was reading this book this week, I, I, was, I came, I had an encounter with Christ, and let me tell you about Him and His goodness and His grace. And that will strengthen you. Maybe an illustration will help be helpful. I talked in another 
context of where I was pastoring, um, after being there for a number of number of years, a, a young man that had struggled with smoking. Smoking's not great for a guy, we know that. But he was he had grown up in a church that said Christians don't smoke. Well, I can't find that in the book. It might not be healthy, but it, I can't find it anywhere in the text. And he had stopped coming to church. He had stopped engaging in the life of the church because he couldn't stop smoking. And he was just like, I can't do this. The church says this is what we're to do, and this is what it means to be a Christian, and I can't do that. But God, in his grace, allowed me to pastor him, and he started coming to church, and he started hearing week after week about God's grace. That we're a Christian not because of what we do, but because of what Christ did. We're a Christian not on, the faith, on, on faith in our ability to do a bunch of commands, but in faith in what Christ had done. And he was overwhelmed. He says, I mean, God has declared me righteous not because of my doing, but because of what he's done? I go, yeah. And suddenly the door to the church opened for him. He was, he was welcome to come in. He, 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 there was, <laughs> he realized he understood what it meant to be a Christian, and, and, and literally he also eventually had the power to deal not only with smoking, but other things he was struggling with. And it was absolutely beautiful. What strengthened his heart, what strengthened his mind and his desires was not me, but was the grace of God. What God had done. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods to which have benefited those devoted to them. And I, I think he's talking there about rules and regulations. We see that in Colossians 2. I won't go there, but you can later. And then he says, and he unpacks for us this grace, verse 10, 11, and 12. He says, we have an altar from, from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burnt outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to, to sanctify the people through his own blood. Like, what is he saying there? Old Testament. Day of Atonement, one day a year. They would kill a bull and they would kill a goat. That goat was slaughtered and on the altar, which was just outside the outside the temple, in 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 the court, but it was it was outside the holy place in the holy of holies. So these two animals were slaughtered, and the blood was brought that one day a year was brought into the holy of holies by the priest, the high priest, sprinkled on the altar, which signified the presence of God. And the sins of the people were forgiven, and then the, the blood was sprinkled upon the people. We saw that in the days of Moses. And, and so the sprinkling would take place. And, and, and he's saying, then they would take that bull and that goat on that day only. And they would take the flesh, the body, the carcass of that animal, and they would bring it outside the camp, and they would burn it. 
Now in other sacrifices, the priest got to keep the meat and eat it. But on the Day of Atonement, that was burned on the outside because it was a symbol of their, their, their sin that was destroyed and, and discarded and put away. And our author is simply saying, that's what happened in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament under Jesus, where was Jesus crucified? Outside of Jerusalem. He bore our sins. He had no place in the presence of the temple. That's where He was punished. That's where his, He bore our sins. That's where He was put to death. And then as we read earlier in the book of Hebrews, He took His blood. His blood was shed, but it was sprinkled in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, in the very presence of God, in heaven itself. So that you and I, by faith in Him and His work, can enter like children into the presence of a Father. That's the grace that ought to strengthen our hearts. That allows us and motivates us to love our brothers and sisters. To love our strang- the stranger. To love the one in prison. To keep the marriage bed undefiled. To not love money, but to love God. It's that knowledge. And with that in mind, he says, let's go out to the outside of the camp and bear the reproach he endured. In other, in other words, let's be willing to bear his reproach. Let's, let's be willing to tell others about Christ. Let's be willing to, 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 to identify with the one in prison who's been mistreated for his pursuing Christ. Let's be willing to go there even if it costs us much. Why, in verse 14, because we seek the city that is to come. This place, this city, this country is not eternal, but that one is. Through him then, let us, verse 15, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Praise him, just like he said last week. And then in verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share with what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. <laughs> this is what we're called to do. This is, this is what, what, what we were meant to do. But we only can do that because of what Christ has done for us. And as we're strengthened week after week and day after day by His grace. And then he concludes in verse 17 through 19. He goes back to this leadership principle principles he says obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls he doesn't say obey every leader and submit to every leader but we're to obey and submit to the leaders who 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 function like this who faithfully bring the word of god but more than that look at this they are keeping watch over your souls this is the idea of a shepherd who stays up at night to make sure that the wolves and 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 the other dangers of the night won't attack the sheep This speaks of a sleepless leader. Why? Because the sleepless leader cares for the souls of the flock. This speaks of one who prays for the flock. This speaks of one who will spend time with the broken in the flock. This speaks of one who will take time for anyone in the flock. 
because he cares for their souls. He cares, are they growing in Christ? Are they taking the next step? Are they maturing? Are they, are they developing? That's what leaders do. In community grace, when we start thinking of who our elders are in our context, they need to be individuals who are doing this, functioning like this. Not just the paid guy, but even the unpaid elders. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then he says, pray for us. You know, in the context of leadership, and over the course of 25 years as a pastor, the most difficult thing to deal with in the context of the church is when individuals within are always in opposition, always wanting to fight. But that doesn't mean we don't have individuals who say, well, what about this? Or I'm thinking about this. But you, you can do that. You, you, we can do that in, in a context where it's healthy and it's, it's good and it's wholesome and it's not like I want my way. It, 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 but there, there is a, there's a place where a lot of times it's just a fight. And that's the hardest thing to deal with as a leader. And there's no joy. There's, there's groaning instead. Uh, but there's a joy when somebody wants to know the truth and they're asking questions and hard questions and good questions, and, and, but they want to grow in Christ and that's what motivates them. And, and, and there's a, a willingness to obey and submit, but not, not, not like I'll do whatever the preacher says. That's not, that's not, that's not the point here. It's, it's, it's what does the text say? And, and I think you got the message wrong, Elroy. I think the text actually says this, and, but I, I'm not sure. Let's, let's talk. That's healthy. That's good. And that brings joy. And then in verse 18, he says, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience. One of the struggles of a leader is I'm, I'm, I'm a sheep. And I fall short. And, and I need to bring the word of God. I don't know how many times I go, I've got to preach God's word, but I've I got to deal with some things in my life first and ask God to forgive me. And so pray for us. That's what our author's saying. This morning, I, got a, I told you I got a text from Josh, and we were texting back and forth. But what started the, te- the, the texting back and forth is, uh, I'm assuming he was on the bus heading to, to church. He says, praying that God would use you to make plain the meaning of his word this morning. So my son was praying for me. As I was putting the final touches on today's sermon, and, and, I, and I hope his prayer was answered. I hope this word was made plain for you today. But that brought joy. Because he was, that's what he was doing. It was like he was coming alongside me, even though he's 2,000 miles away and says, Dad, I'm praying for you, and I'm praying that you would do your job Bring the word and make it plain. I've already spoken too long, and we got what we're going to do is we're going to use verses 20 to 21 as our benediction, and I'll let you 
read and finish up 22 to 24. But community grace, there's a lot in there, isn't there? Because of what Christ has done for us, it changes the way we live. It changes the way we interact with each other. It ought to. And not that I've arrived. I'm not coming to you with this. But I pray that over the course of this year, we'll look a lot closer to that than we did last year. And I, I hope in five years we can say, man, we, we really, we're moving even closer to that ideal. I pray that as you examine your life, you can go, yeah, this is, this is me. I, I can see that I love the brothers. Community grace, may this be true of us. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. But the truth is you love us. You love me. You love us far more than we ever could love you. It was evident when you went outside the camp and you gave your life as a sacrifice. You died on that cross in our place. You took upon our sin and you took upon yourself God's punishment. And, and you did that because of your incredible grace. Father, I pray that we'd be a people who not only believe that, but would, but would marvel at that and rejoice at that. And out of that, and, and because of that, we would worship you. And our worship would be a worship that would be more than just a song, although I pray we would sing with, with a real passion. But Father, I pray that we would worship you by the way we treat one another. And that worship would be strengthened by your grace that we hear day after day, week after week. I ask you these things not because I or we deserve them, but Lord, um, because of Jesus and his work on the cross. In your precious name we pray. Amen. We gather around the table and we just pause to stop to remember that Christ on that very good Friday. He was butchered, put to death outside the camp. He bore our sins. Three days later, he rose from the grave never to die again. But we come together to remember his grace and be strengthened by it. And so if you're a Christian, you're welcome to join us. It's, this is not closed. But we, we like to do it as a family, so come with somebody, and uh, we'll do that as we sing. Please stand as we worship and remember. <laughs>